Solving Sacramento. So I was a theater kid, and now I guess as penance for annoying people to death, I live with somebody who loves my least favorite musical. Now, I liked musicals, but something about Rent was a turning point for me. And I think it's because I found the main characters to be this, I don't know, weird swath of people. And some of that has to do with the character of Benny. Now, Benny used to be part of the artistic crew of the main characters that we know from the show. Uh, he went on to purchase the building that everybody lives in, and he's asking that group of people to pay up on the last year of rent. The title song is literally about refusing to pay this guy. And the thing is, Benny has let them live rent-free for a whole year in New York City. Now, Benny's not the most sympathetic character. He's got weird motivations, too. Like, he's demanding back rent, but he'll let them all live there for free if they stop protesting landlords or whatever. But going back to Mark and Roger and Mimi and everybody else, these characters, they still get to be artists. And they have an entire year to save up, to look for other housing, to network, and find very patient roommates, but no, instead, they're scream-singing all this melodramatic, unlistenable music, and anyway, this week we touch on rent. Specifically, the monthly kind that you pay to live in a place. It's not the only topic. From Solving Sacramento, I'm Nick Bruner, and this is Housing in the Capital. Yes, this series still does revolve around conversations regarding housing in California's capital city, just in case you thought I buried the lead. The conversation this week is a look into the ideas of people in the nonprofit housing sector. Both of the voices you hear today have moved to Sacramento from elsewhere. Both of them find it diverse. There are desirable school districts. It's easy to travel to other neat parts of the state. Who are these concerned and, as you'll find out later, very patient people? I'm Nora Coster. I am a resident of Sacramento, and I work for EAH Housing as a business development manager. And I'm Jonathan Cook. I'm a Sacramento resident, and I'm executive director at Sacramento Housing Alliance. As has become a theme of this series, nimbyism is what kicks off this week. Here's Noor. As far as like when is nimbyism justified, I don't, I don't know that there's any situation where we should be like, we don't want to house people. I would like to meet the person that says that, you know, because I just don't I, I don't fundamentally understand as a human being why you would want to see someone suffer. They they don't want the encampment. Right. And then the next step is to get those people into housing. Yes. And then when that housing development is being proposed for supportive housing for formerly homeless folks, they object to that. And it's just like, you know, what are you actually wanting to accomplish in this? Because is it just you don't want this next to your business, you don't want this next to your house, or do you actually fully understand what the next steps are to get folks off the street who are experiencing homelessness? So you think it's more just like an educational thing, like we just have to be able to keep talking about it and providing people with information and doing the community engagement. And yeah, I mean, honestly, like I've only been doing this for, you know, 11 years now but in those 11 years I do feel like I am still facing the same issues I was 11 years ago mm -hmm. as far as the opposition and but a lot has also changed right like we are as an industry and as an advocacy community talking about how to change the narrative right mm -hmm. and like 
formally and like putting out actual studies and information and toolkits to help folks like figure out like, okay, here's how you talk about this in a way that will make sense to your neighbor, right? So that they know exactly what you're talking about. And it's not coming from a place of fear or a lack of understanding. And I think that's super helpful. But do you think, I mean, do you think that's it? Like we just do keep doing that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's challenging because we are still having a lot of the same conversations we've been having for over 10 years, right? That's true. But I also feel like at the state level, that larger picture that's kind of freed up some of these solutions for cities and counties to be able to do. Some of that has been a lag from some of when these bills were passed and signed into law. And then this last session, there was a really robust housing package that the governor signed. And so I think that is really helping because you have people who represent really NIMBY communities and their, you know, state or assembly districts that are looking at these solutions at a state level and trying to come up with these solutions. I think that's part of it. But then it's also... I think more of a challenge for local elected officials at the city and county level because, you know, it's someone who says, this is my neighborhood specifically here, you live next to me, or, you know, kind of these turf wars that are happening between the county and the city where they're like, hey, city, you're not doing enough to address the encampments in front of our workplace. Mm. And I think that's also a legitimate concern. So I think you have to balance how do we manage these concerns of folks who are wanting to see this problem solved, right? Because if we have encampments, you know, along, you know, a river parkway or in front of businesses, like, I don't think any of us think that that's a great thing. But Also explaining that, okay, we could clean up an encampment, but where are they going to go if we don't have those units? Exactly. Or if we we get folks off the street, they have to have a place to go. And so explaining what the next step is and what how that works in terms of how we develop our community and how we kind of shift that narrative, I think that's incumbent on all of us, you know, the advocates, the local elected officials, business owners. And kind of bringing together those diverse coalitions to kind of have this collective framework of this is how we kind of explain it to folks. And then understanding that for the elected officials, there's probably going to be some opposition. You're going to piss some people off inevitably. And you have to be okay with that. I think if you're a politician, you have to develop a pretty tough skin. Yeah, I think it takes a little bit of uh, political courage to be able to make some of these decisions. I'm assuming there's places we could point to where that's happened, right? Where, Mm -hmm. you know, they have had to stand up for themselves and, um, you know, but to the benefit of the larger community. So, I mean, I think it's a replicable model. I mean, there are places, for example, during um, the pandemic, right, that received some state funding or the federal money that came down for COVID-19 that was used um, at the state level for housing, Um, you know, mostly to make sure that the unhoused population could be brought in safely so that we weren't going to have a mass outbreak, right? Um, So things like room key and home key Mm -hmm. in the places that were able to tap into those resources quickly and get folks inside. I mean, there were places, I remember reading maybe, um, I don't know if it was in the Tahoe area, but there were a few places, right, in like Lake Elsinore that were basically almost at functional zero for homelessness because they didn't have like a massive homeless population because they were smaller communities. But the folks they did have, they were able to buy a few buildings and get folks indoors. And I mean, 
really, if like one community can do that, we've got, you know, thousands of small communities across California. I feel like that that should be replicable. But yeah, I think it always, again, goes back to scaling up the investment, right? We saw something that worked, like how do we scale that up so that we can keep doing it? Um, and how do we make it so that it's not difficult for the folks that are doing the work? You know, like local governments sometimes are small and have a lack of capacity mm -hmm. um, or staff or, you know, they just need the extra support. And I think that's a really big part of it, too. And so, yeah, I, I feel like I mean, I don't want to be a broken record, but I'm just like, well, if we just had the investment in people in <laughs> building, we would definitely solve this. I was at a Solving Sacramento event actually on Monday night at New Helvetia. And I think one of the questions from the audience was um, the potential $10 billion uh, bond that will be on the ballot in 2024 for affordable housing and homelessness funding. Somebody in the audience was like, well, you know, like, where is that money coming from? Like, where, you know, how do we scale up? I feel like that's a, always a good question, especially for the public, because, you know, I think it is hard to wrap our heads around such large numbers. But, you know, thinking about, well, if the state's budget's $300 billion a year and we spend probably around, you know, 18 to 20 billion a year on education, we spend probably about that much on prison systems and on healthcare, right? Like all of these other sectors that are very important. Well, the prison system, no, but public safety, sure. Right. How are we matching the need and how are we matching like what we are seeing on the streets? I mean, I know a lot of places like LA and um, the Bay Area have been looking at, well, the cost savings when you house someone should be captured in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if, you know, we decrease our unhoused population in Sacramento, that's probably going to have a positive impact on our healthcare system, right? In our emergency system, you're going to have, you know, fewer ER visits, you're going to have fewer police calls, you're going to have, you know, fewer um, just issues like outside on the streets, right? You're going to also probably not have to create so many temporary, very expensive shelters because mm -hmm. you'll need fewer of them once folks are permanently housed, right? I agree. And I think that for 2024, this election year coming up that we're in the middle of, you know, locally and statewide, there's a lot of these things that I think can help ameliorate some of these issues where we're thinking of the potential housing bond from Assemblymember Wicks, um, ACA1, which will lower that threshold for approving new uh, tax measures locally to help uh, local governments raise money and funds for affordable housing and infrastructure projects generally. Um, and then in Sacramento, I think both for the county and the city, we need an inclusionary uh, zoning ordinance so that we can require all developments have a certain percentage allocated for affordable housing, because that's part of the solution as mm -hmm. well, in our opinion. Um and then making sure that folks aren't getting left behind when we're doing development, right? So we're also wanting to have the city adopt a community benefits agreement ordinance. Uh, this has been a successful model in other cities across the country, and we're looking at that 
particularly for the coalition we're part of, the Sacramento Investment Without Displacement around the Aggie Square development mm-hmm. um, at the UC Davis Med Center campus, uh, you know, near a historically black neighborhood of Oak Park, um, and making sure that, you know, part of that development and investment, we want investments in our community, but we also want to make sure that uh, part of that money gets invested back into the people who live in those communities. And there's a tangible benefit from those investments for all of us. I will say to the credit of our our leadership here in Sacramento that we have a pro-housing city council. I think it's encouraging at the last city council meeting last week that I attended that each of the council members were supportive of increasing density and um, opportunities for zoning changes in each of their council districts to have, um, you know, an increase in that density and and all of that. So it's encouraging to see that we have a really pro-housing city council. I will say also that, you know, the challenge that we're facing is significant. And so for both the city and the county to be able to really ameliorate the situation for our housed population, it's really going to take an aggressive investment and a lot of coordination between multiple jurisdictions, all of the cities in Sacramento County, the county itself, and the city of Sacramento to build these permanent supportive housing units, to build, you know, temporary shelters to get folks off the street, supportive housing, and the supportive staff that comes with that. So really making sure that we're staffing up our social workers, and it's it's just going to take a real historic investment to be able to meet the the need that we find ourselves facing uh, in 2023. I think we have all of the evidence-based solutions in front of us in Sacramento specifically, right? And that's really encouraging that, you know, it's actually on the table and the city's looking at it, right? Like they want to reestablish an inclusionary zoning ordinance, you know, I guess it remains to be seen what that's going to look like. But I mean, in any situation or any solutions oriented study or research or city that we're looking at, like that needs to be part of part of the puzzle, right? Like, so we need inclusionary zoning. Ding! Nick from the future jumping in here for just a moment. Uh, Here to let you know that as of the release of this episode, Sacramento has since voted to end exclusionary zoning, joining cities like Minneapolis, Minnesota, Gainesville, Florida, and Berkeley, right here in California. At the time of this recording, it wasn't yet a done deal. And if you'd like to know more about exclusionary zoning, check out the first episode of this podcast. Okay, back to this week's discussion. They're looking at, you know, bringing in more affordable housing funding at the local level. You know, again, we need to figure out what that's going to look like and where it's going to go. But at least it's it's on the table, you know. And so I think in that sense, we're moving in the right direction in terms of at least that we have this pro housing council and mayor that know what the solutions are. And it's just a matter of like getting those across the finish line. I think once that happens, we will see a pretty massive shift in the city. Um, And hopefully the county will go in the same direction. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, it'll just go down to, you know, are we getting that local resource? And are we changing local ordinances to be more 
pro people, right? Like, are we thinking about the folks that we need to keep housed and the folks that are on the streets and what are we doing to help them? After the break, Noor and Jonathan talk about the state of rent in the city of Sacramento, who benefits from the housing system as it currently sits, and roadblocks the two of them see in affordable housing initiatives. That's in a minute. Support for Housing in the Capital comes from Sacramento News and Review, our local alternative news weekly since 1989, and a member of the Solving Sacramento Journalism Collaborative. Read more at www.sacramento.newsreview.com. It's Housing in the Capital. I'm Nick Bruner, and this week's conversation is between Noor Kosser and Jonathan Cook. In this half of the episode, I got curious. What if I were relocating to Sacramento in 2024? Let's say I got an entry-level job with the state government and I'm coming into town from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Bloomington, Illinois, or Winnemucca, Nevada, where my rent was $850 a month. Where do I start? Again, this is newer. Hmm. Well, I did have to do that once. Because <laughs> <laughs> I moved here from southern Utah. Uh, and yeah, my rent went from 400 a month to close to 800 a month, so it doubled. Um, and I did move downtown, Sacramento. So I actually went to, um, you know, I looked up affordable housing sites. Uh, and this was before I worked in affordable housing. So it was just more like looking for low rent apartments or low income apartments or apartments where you have to income qualify, right? Like I was plugging in the words. Um, and then for me, the Capital Area Development Authority actually came up, CADA. Um, and they did have units available and they were income restricted. And so that is where I moved to because I applied and got in um, and it was great. And I wish that everybody could do that because, yeah, when you look at the CADA site, there's a massive wait list for all of their units and every other affordable housing development. You know, um, we usually when we open a new development, we'll get thousands of applications for 100 units. And that's the case for any developer that you'll talk to in the entire state. So, yeah, I mean, that's normally how I think anybody would do it. But that doesn't necessarily mean you'll find something. And we know this to be true just even at a federal level, right? Like, you know, we know that for everyone that actually needs housing assistance and for, you know, the United States, that's usually like a housing voucher, right? A Section 8 voucher is what, what people might know it as. Um, there's only one available for every four families that actually needs it. Sometimes not enough because the market rent might be much higher than what that voucher um, will pay for. The need is there and folks are not finding those units even though they need them. And yeah, so if you're going to move here from Winnemucca, good luck. I don't know. I would also recommend that you look at some of these, you know, local nonprofits that might be able to help you with navigating some of this. I remember when I was moving to different parts of the Bay Area, I would try to find these housing groups on Facebook. I mean, this was like 10 years ago <laughs> and uh, different things online. Um, sometimes you can find groups where they're, you know, they're advertising things where someone's running out of room that might be heavily subsidized because they're wanting certain folks like students, artists, um, you know, younger people just getting out of school to be able to land on their feet and live somewhere in a big city. Um, but it's, it's tough. I, I will acknowledge that. And, uh, 
rents have gone up significantly over the last two years in particular. And so, um, you know, I, I, I have a large, two large apartment complexes next to my community and I was looking and a studio is almost $2,000 a month in the apartment building right next to me. So it's kind of stunning to see the cost of everything that's gone up and just, um, it's really tough for folks to live on their own. If you're going to be living with a roommate, that's something I would recommend. But if you're going to try to live on your own in a studio or a one bedroom apartment, um, it's tough because often you're not going to find something you can afford easily. My husband and I lived in San Francisco. We had rent control. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say, honestly, that was one of the reasons why we were able to save enough to then be able to buy our house here when we decided to move back because I knew how much my rent was going to go up every year. It was going to be 1.2% a year. And I was like, wait. And my salary was going up, you know, not a lot, but it was going up, you know. So I was like, okay, I can put aside enough eventually where after, yeah, several years we had enough for a down payment. But had my rent gone up 10 to 20% a year, like, no, there's no way I would have had mm-hmm. enough extra cash to put aside, you know? And so I, I always do, I'm always curious when folks are anti-rent control because I'm like, well, I had my own personal experience and I benefited from it because I was able to then buy a house. And that's even better because now I know what my mortgage is every month, right? Like I'm not going to have this crazy increase of rent because I own my home, but I mean, you know, it just goes back to like, well, this is why like owning property is such a big thing in the United States, right? Like that is the biggest wealth builder. Like it's stability. It's this asset. It's a way to know how much money you can and can't save. Like all the things that, you know, you need to do to like plan for your future are much easier when you have consistency in how much you're spending every month. (laughs) Yeah, you're basically locking in your rent because you're you know, with Prop 13, with property taxes, you're basically setting your property tax rate that's not going to increase very much in the future. So, you know, folks who are buying something now are at a disadvantage in terms of property tax compared to someone who bought that uh, condo when it was built, you Mm -hmm. know, 15 years ago. Um, So that's just the structure that we have now. But it's it's tough. I mean, I, I remember when I was living in San Francisco and friends in Berkeley, you know, rent control really makes a big difference. And that's something I would like to see come here in Sacramento Mm -hmm. because it really makes a difference. It keeps uh, folks in these communities that make our city and our community interesting, in my opinion, right? You have artists, musicians, uh, folks who are traveling, workers, seasonal workers. We live in a really uh, large agricultural valley, right? And that's a a wonderful thing, the farm to fork capital. And so I come from an ag area where I grew up in the North Bay in Napa County where we had a lot of seasonal workers and housing was incredibly expensive in Napa County. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'd have situations where folks were living in bunk beds, you know, and they were paying, you know, three, 400 bucks a week um, because they didn't have a locked in lease or something like that. So, you know, there are a lot of situations where folks are having to live in really creative situations to be able to afford to have housing and, you know, that housing insecurity where someone might be couch surfing or I had a friend who moved up to Sacramento to work here and she couldn't secure a lease quickly. And so she was living in an Airbnb, mm-hmm. some of these long-term rentals on Airbnb for a month or two. And some of those situations aren't great. I remember her telling me that uh, the host wouldn't allow her to use the kitchen, right? Which seems crazy if you're running a place and you can't access 
a refrigerator or anything more than a microwave. Right. So it's really creating situations where folks aren't able to live in a way that we'd want them to. Mm -hmm. So I think rent control definitely could be part of the solution here. Yeah. I feel like I'm very lucky and benefit more than I should be. Um, compared to folks that don't own homes, you know, I mean, I, I remember this coming up um, with a former supervisor of mine. He mentioned that I think the mortgage interest deduction um, at the federal level, it costs us 80 billion a year. Um, and that's like just a little bit of money that every homeowner got, you know, when they bought their house that we probably didn't really need to get, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and that 80 billion could have easily just been reprioritized for homelessness or affordable housing. But, you know, we also get our mortgage interest deduction. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, also as a homeowner, that's a, a nice thing for our taxes. But, you know, I wish that also applied to renters. Renters don't mm -hmm. get that kind of relief. I think ultimately it, it benefits people who own commercial buildings, who own rental buildings that they're, you know, renting out of an apartment or they're renting out an investment property. But ultimately, I think it's unsustainable because if you create the situation where the rents go up so high, both for businesses and for individuals, you're driving a lot of folks out of these communities. And in situations with larger cities where you have a draw for a lot of jobs from you know the surrounding regions, your workforce is having to live further and further away. And so that reduces their quality of life if they're having to commute three hours a day to get to and from work. Um, and is, is not helping us get closer to our climate goals, right, when you have folks having to spend that much time on the road. So I think ultimately this is unsustainable because you need to have a system where, sure, in this capitalist system, you know, the rents can go up a certain percentage each year. You know, that's part of the inflationary environment we find ourselves in. Wages hopefully will go up at a rate that's faster than that. Um, but without having some sort of gauge or control to make sure that that's happening in a sustainable way, it will be unsustainable. I wouldn't want to hurt like the folks that rely on rental income for their own income, right? Like, cause there are people like that. Like, I think when it becomes the situation where you have, you know, like large commercial developers or these large kind of like national landlords that are buying up properties or, um, you know, having all these like luxury apartments go up and then not having any available at lower income levels or having these really restrictive requirements to move in um, or being basically exclusionary. I think that's when like, I feel like public policy should step in and be like, okay, like what's really going on here? Is this best for the community? And I think that's a completely different situation than like a mom and pop, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do think rent control would be really helpful, just cause evictions, right? And like just access to help if you might think that you're getting evicted. I think that's a big thing too, right? I don't think a lot of folks really know what to do or how to get support or help um, or where to go, you know, and most of the time, you know, the landlord will win. So, you know, how do we make it a little bit more equitable, especially just knowing, you know, who's getting evicted? And it's going to, you know, tend to be lower income folks. 
I think in the Sacramento region, we need a permanent funding source for affordable housing and for permanent supportive housing. That's the biggest thing in my view. And then also, I think making sure that we have greater coordination between jurisdictions. So making sure that we're working in partnership with the county, with the state and the federal government to make sure that we're maximizing all of the dollars that should be coming to our region to build this. Um, so for me, it's really those two things. It's funding and greater partnership. Just on a working level, like those are the two things that are my daily barriers, right? If I find a site, I'm very excited about it because I've been able to maybe check off certain boxes, right? Like, is it close to transit? Is it close to schools? Is it close to other amenities that people need? Like, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now I need some local money because I have to apply to the state for very competitive funds and I'll be more competitive if I have local dollars to match. Do I have those? No. And then, yeah, the second barrier is that partnership, right? Like I need to make sure that I'm coordinating with the continuum of care, with the Sacramento Housing Redevelopment Agency, with the city, with the county, um, anyone that's involved in providing supportive or affordable homes to folks that are in need, finding those folks, making sure that they're on the list, making sure that we're finding them, you know, like, again, that once we get down that line of, okay, the units are almost ready, we need these people, how are we going to make sure that they're matched correctly to the right unit with the right services, you know, that becomes another barrier that, you know, I think is definitely solvable as long as we're working together. But, you know, we all have to be able to take that step. Before we close this one, I would like to offer a huge thank you to both Noor and Jonathan this week. Here's why. These interviews typically take about 45 minutes to record. Toward the end of this taping, I ran into this weird error where my laptop and audio equipment simply froze. We stopped the recording. I went back to skim through the last 45 minutes or so of audio. Everything seemed okay with Jonathan, but the entire 45 minutes of Noor came out like this. And it could be, you know, and it could be, you know. Both and Jonathan and Noor stuck around for another 30, 45 minutes to pick up where we left off. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you again. Be, you know. And that, it could be, you know, that isn't too distracting, right? And it could be, if you are willing to remix this into next be, summer's number one banger, and it could be, you know, or if you have questions, comments, ideas around housing, please write us. Info at solvingsacramento.org. Our project manager is Sina Christian. Our project editor is Kat Graziosi. This week's audio was recorded, edited, and the episode hosted by me, Nick Bruner. Lillian Francis composed housing in the Capitals theme music. She is all over the place online. Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, and more. LillianFrancisMusic.com. Next week. There are people right now that work at the city that go drive into their office in 2023 get teleported to 2040 and work on like what Sacramento is going to look like in 2040. Then they clock out and then they're back in 2023. A visit to the future. Stay subscribed. We'll see you next time. This podcast is supported by funding from the Solutions Journalism Network.